Um, good afternoon. Thanks so much for coming. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm research officer here at the Kuwait program and uh, very happy to have with us tonight Anastasia Nasova to speak about the merchant elite and parliamentary politics in Kuwait, something that's especially relevant after the recent elections that we had in November. We, meaning Kuwait, not the U.S. Um, but anyway, um, so Anastasia did her Ph.D. in political science here um, at the LSE and her thesis is dedicated to the dynamics of political participation of the business sector in Kuwait, so similar to what, what she's going to be speaking about tonight. She did her master's degree in Gulf Studies at Exeter and was previously working as an associate research fellow in the ESRC-funded project Renegotiating the Social Contract in the GCC State Business Relations and Reform in the Oil Rentier Gulf Monarchies at Exeter. So um, she's going to speak for around 30 to 40 minutes and then we'll open it up for questions and answers. So I'll let you go ahead and start. Thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you very much for coming here this afternoon. And um, it's particularly nice to see lots of friendly faces um, and colleagues. Um, so I'm going to speak about uh, the merchant elite and parliamentary politics uh, in Kuwait. And as Courtney mentioned, this was my... Uh, PhD project, uh, which I spent the last four years um, researching. So that's the first time for me to present this project in full, so it would be great to hear your feedback and comments on it. Um, um, okay. uh, so I'll start with a bit of a background of uh, this research and how I came to do it in LSE. So the project emerged uh, basically out of a quite an obvious contradiction between the rentier state theory and uh, the rea reality of Kuwaiti politics, which we can observe. Um, according to rentier state theory, um, resource-rich states like Kuwait and um, other GCC countries um, acquire most of their wealth from oil, obviously, and the, the government is the one which um, gets the revenues and then allocates it to the population. So the population at large is um, thought uh, to have no legitimate uh, reasons to demand participation. Uh, the business relations with the state are viewed from the same perspective, so uh, the business elite is thought to have exchanged its political power or ability to influence politics uh, to the um, wealth distributed by the state and therefore uh, rentier state theory expects business in such countries to be very politically passive and to uh, not have any ability to influence policy making in the country. Uh, however, uh, as probably people who have been to Kuwait would agree with me, uh, when you come to Kuwait probably the first thing you learn is that uh, the socio-economic stratification is uh, quite drastic and um, it's quite obvious that the country has a very distinct merchant elite which has retained great economic power and also ability to influence policy making. And um, there are quite a few merchant families in Kuwait who have been consistently represented in the parliament and here I have um, sort of just given a couple of examples which would be familiar for some of you. So the um, late Jasim al-Khurafi, who was a speaker for a long time um, of the parliament and was the minister of finance, 
his nephew Marzouk al Ghanim, who is the Speaker of the Kuwaiti Parliament at the moment and was the Speaker at the, during the last uh, National Assembly. Um, Mohammed Sagar, who is not the, the MP at the moment but was in the politics for quite a while and is thought to be returning um, to Kuwaiti politics. Um, so it's clear that some of the families have um, retained their uh, political activity. Also, it's um, not the case that the merchants in Kuwait are always um, government support pillars. So the history of the country actually shows that the merchants have been um, at different occasions allied with the opposition and then reallied with the government again. So there have been consistent um, shifts between voice and loyalty. Um, and overall, merchants in Kuwait are um, able to influence economic policy making um, quite uh, drastically. Um, therefore, my the main question of my research was uh, why do we observe uh, the merchants' active political engagement in Kuwait contrary to the predictions of the rentier state theory? And what can explain the variation between uh, patterns of engagement uh, among different merchant families? So, um, of course, not all of them are very, very politically active. So what, which factors um, explain why some of them go into parliament, some of them are uh, successful in the parliament, some of them are trying to stay away from the political scene and why do they shift from alliance to the government to um, becoming more opposition leaning. Um, I will begin with a bit of a historical background about um, the business community in Kuwait. So uh, probably most of you know that um, Kuwait has uh, had a very uh, distinct merchant elite since the pre-oil times. Uh, so the, the merchants were the backbone of the country's economy and this enabled them to um, exercise political power as well. So they were actually the ones who chose the Al-Sabah family to rule the country. Um, but of course after oil the dependency lines have um, reversed and um, the ruling powers were ultimately free from this economic dependency on the merchants and the merchants were now dependent on the government for distribution of uh, the oil wealth. Uh, the merchants' economic positions were not settled straight away after the emergence of the oil economy. So there was quite a um, long period of rivalry between the merchant families, um, the sheikhs and uh, the British companies, all of whom wanted to um, have a slice of this um, Oil, oil wealth and the, the development and um, construction boom in Kuwait in the 50s. Um, however, um, ultimately in the beginning of the 1960s, the merchant privileges were um, legislatively settled. So in 1960, uh, the commercial company's law was um, adopted and it freed the merchants from any kind of foreign um, uh, competition, so every foreign company and um, individual who wants to operate in Kuwait and do business in Kuwait has to do it through the local partner or local agent. So the agency was a particularly um, fruitful fiefdom for merchants because this doesn't require them to do actually anything apart from signing the contract and then getting the commission. Um, also all the shareholding companies which were established in that period were um, greatly supported by the state, so the merchants would come up with the idea and then some of the capital, but 
the majority the, of the capital would be provided by, by the government. Um, so this, uh, on one hand, um, resulted in lucrative business opportunities. On the other hand, merchants became uh, extremely state-dependent and vulnerable to fluctuations of oil economy. So uh, this kind of love-hate relationship was established between the business and the state. So on one hand, the state was always expected to step in in case of economic crisis, uh, which it did on multiple occasions. Um, and here's the illustration of Sukul Manakh, um, the stock exchange uh, crash which happened in 1982 and when the, the government had to step in and bail out the investors. Um, the same story happened after the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but on the other hand, uh, merchants feel vulnerable because uh, there is a threat of um, the state's the state's arbitrary actions towards business. So there could be nationalizations of the company or um, the state contracts could be uh, revoked, uh, reawarded, and so on. Um, so this is what concerns merchant as economic group and how it evolved after oil. Um, as a social group, um, the most distinct feature of the merchant's community after the emergence of the oil economy is that it uh, managed to preserve its um, elitist social structure. So um, if we compare the list of merchants um, before oil, and this is what I tried to do in my research. So I took the list of um, most prominent merchant families as given by Kuwaiti so sociologist Khaldun al-Nakib, um, and then tried to trace what are their current assets and um, what are their uh, board membership positions in the Kuwait Stock Exchange. So we can see that there is a bit of, uh, quite a bit of continuity. So some, a lot of the, those families have quite a few uh, board positions. And almost none of them disappeared from the economic field. So um, uh, this actually shows that the pre-oil merchant elite was sort of sustained in the same um, um, form after the emergence of oil. And the merchant community was able to retain this um, high barriers of entry. So there are very few newcomers into this pre-oil merchant um, elite group. Um, also, to illustrate the uh, concentration of the ownership, I um, analyzed, the, again, the ownership of the Kuwait Stock Exchange. And it appeared that almost half of the all um, board membership positions in Kuwait Stock Exchange are owned by only 50 merchant families. And those 50 families are um, part of 500 which are represented in Kuwait Stock Exchange. So it's quite a, quite a s small amount of families which own half of the companies. Um, so uh, another feature which um, um, is crucial here is that merchants became autonomous and quite isolated from the rest of the population. So um, they, there are no um, ties with the rest of the, the population, neither through taxation, so the merchants are not paying tax and therefore they're, they're, there's nothing that they're giving back to the state. Um, and uh, neither they're employing the um, majority of Kuwaitis. So the private sector in Kuwait is obviously dominated by the um, foreign labor. Um, so this situation presents um, the basis of a quite serious socio-economic conflict which is developing in Kuwait and has been um, 
prominent in Kuwaiti politics in the past few years. So the, the majority of the population which um, are of um, less prominent background um, and um, are less wealthy uh, have realized that uh, they're just getting the crumbs of the big pie which the business families and the, uh, the ruling family are distributing between themselves. And um, this, this has led for them to challenge the merchant positions through the parliament. So as a result, the merchants' economic interests can be um, threatened both by the state and by the rival socio-economic groups. And um, this is the main reasons for them to actually choose to go into politics and into parliament in order to protect their interests um, and their, their economic privileges uh, from those two threats. Um, and here I'm, um, this, um, I'm, I will talk about two variations of the merchant's political involvement. So uh, passive versus active, so why some of the families choose to go into parliament and are um, successful in doing that and some the families are staying away from politics and voice versus loyalty. So why um, at some points of history merchants were um, allied with the opposition and at some points of history they were reallied with the government. So w which factors explain this kind of variation and dynamics in the merchant politics? Um, so this might look a bit confusing but I'll explain it in a second. So in order to um, analyze this distinction between passive fam passive, politically passive families and politically active families. I've um, um, collected a sample of 35 merchant families, the most probably prominent in Kuwait, and then traced their political participation, um, participation in the parliament election. So um, as you can see, at the top there are parliament um, elections from the beginning, from the establishment of the parliament until 2013. And uh, the black dots mean that the member of the merchant family went into the elections and um, was elected. The white dot means that um, he went into the elections and was not elected. Um, and then I compiled the family trees as well in order to make sure that those people in the parliament are actually relatives because they might be people with the same surnames. So here I, I just, um, as an example, I put the family tree of Arghanium family and um, the yellow um, cells are those who actually went into parliament and participate in the parliament elections. So you can see that the, the family was quite active um, throughout um, parliamentary history. And while analyzing all these 35 merchant families, I could... Um, divide them into five categories. So first of all, families which are um, very active and very successful in um, parliamentary elections. Uh, then the second ca category, uh, families which are very active but <laughs> they are not getting elected. Uh, the third category are families which uh, used to be active in the beginning of the parliamentary uh, life in Kuwait but then withdrew from politics. Um, then families which never participated and stayed away from, um, from parliament at all. And also a separate category of families which um, are not normally active and are not normally successful in, in the parliamentary politics, but would, they would have one or two very prominent political um, 
personalities, so like um, Al Mullah and uh, Sultan Ben Isa. Um, and then I uh, compared those families between each other and between the categories in order to establish which factors are responsible for this kind of variation. So my first conclusion was that um, all the families which um, are very active in, in Parliament and which um, are striving to get in uh, would operate in very similar um, sectors of business. So this would be uh, families who operate in construction and engineering, oil and gas, um, and um, industrial manufacturing. So all those which are very state dependent. So in order to sustain this business, you need to get a constant flow of state contracts. That's why you need a person to be in the parliament very close to the ruling powers in order to, um, um, to sustain your business interest and to um, successfully compete with the rival families. Um, families which are not so active and which chose to withdraw from parliamentary politics are normally either operating in different sectors which are less state dependent such as retail um, so sectors which are more uh, dependent on just general consumption um, or families which have uh, different ways of political influence so they either occupy mostly governmental positions, so they would be chosen as ministers, or they would be um, in um, economic, uh, economic policy-making bodies, such as like higher, uh, higher councils, higher council of petroleum or um, higher council of planning, um, Kuwait Chamber of Commerce and Industry as well. Um, they would uh, own media outlets as well, um, sometimes own sports clubs, so they would have different venues for political influence. Um, also, these families uh, often would have um, a long-standing history of close personal relations with the ruling family. So, um, if we go back to Thuwaini family, uh, which used to be used used to work with Al Sabah for quite a while before oil, and um, they operate in construction. But it is quite well known that they are uh, fronting for the Al Sabah uh, members who actually own the company, so that by default um, protects their business interests. Um, and when we talk about which factors are responsible for um, some members being um, successful in parliamentary politics and some family members not being as successful, um, my conclusion was that um, it is very much dependent on the sociological factors of um, the sociological features of those families. So um, it depends on the sect, it depends on the um, age of the family, how prominent it used to be before oil, uh, its legacy of political participation. Um, so all those factors allow some of the families to have a great social capital and therefore they are getting elected, they have their voting constituencies, while other families um, are not so successful. And uh, probably the, um, the example here are uh, three Shia merchant families, which are quite old and well established in Kuwait. However, because they're not involved in the Shia political groups in Kuwait, which emerged from 1970s, they do not have enough social base and voting constituency to get them into the parliament. Um, and finally, um, 
the political and ideological affiliation is very important to uh, consider as a fac factor to explain why some of the members um, of those families go into politics. And as I said, um, some of the families would be very politically passive, but then have one or two very bright political personalities. And normally uh, it happens when uh, those um, individuals are affiliated with certain political or religious blocs. So as I said, um, Al-Mullah family was had no um, candidates in the elections until Saleh al-Mullah emerged in 2008. And he is a prominent member of um, Kuwait Democratic Forum. Um, and also Sultan bin Isa, um, also he, he's the head of the Salafi group in Kuwait. So he goes into parliament not representing the commercial interest of his family mostly, but more of um, the political vision of his blog. Um, Moving on to the next variation that um, I wanted to talk about, uh, voice versus loyalty, I um, analyzed this variation on the, um, on the comparison between the two uh, very uh, prominent uh, contentious events in Kuwait, so in 1989 constitutional movement and 2011-2013 opposition movement. Uh, so both um, opposition movements are quite similar. Um, however, in the first case, the merchants were prominent um, allies of the opposition. They were actually leaders of the um, constitutional movement. But in the second case, um, they reallied with the government and um, sort of um, distanced themselves from the opposition. So throughout this comparison, I was trying to identify which factors explain um, this um, uh, dynamics. Uh, in 1989, um, the constitutional movement emerged as a result of the dissolution of the parliament in 1986. Um, that parliament was dominated by the opposition and was dissolved by the government um, without any prospects of returning the parliamentary life back to normal. So this was an unconstitutional dissolution because um, the, no new elections were proclaimed by the government. So therefore, towards 1989, um, a very wide um, um, opposition movement started to emerge, demanding the uh, government to return the parliament back into place, to restore some of the um, provisions of the constitution that were um, cancelled, and uh, to restore the, the, the media freedom as well. Um, and at that point, merchants were highly dependent on the government because it was still the um, economic crisis um, <coughs> caused by the Sukul Manakh um, crash. So they were still recovering from that stock exchange um, bust. Uh, also the, the oil prices were low so um, the, the business environment at that point was um, in a quite um, difficult position. So the last thing that you would expect from the merchants at that point was to join the opposition and to antagonize the government and to lose this government support economically that they were getting. However, this was exactly what happened and um, some of the very prominent uh, Kuwaiti merchants were, became the leaders of the um, constitutional movement um, and the, the Kuwait Chamber of Commerce and Industry was very active in sending the petitions to the government um, demanding the restoration of the par par parliament. Um, and in 2011-2013, um, 
it started quite similar to um, the previous movement. So, um, and in the, in the beginning, the merchants were allied with the opposition, so the, particularly those who were inside the parliament. And um, if, if you might remember, um, the whole opposition movement started with a, a corruption scandal, the, the bribe scandal, that um, the prime minister at that point um, distributed bribes to the MPs, um, and this sort of caused the, the great popular uprising to um, emerge. And it is um, quite important to say that the news about the bribe scandal w was revealed by the newspaper, which is owned by the merchants. So it's um, quite evident that at that point they were probably allied with the, with the opposition. However, in 2012, when the Ahlabiya, when the, the majority bloc uh, started to dominate the opposition scene, merchants started to reverse their position and started to get back to the governmental um, alliance. So, um, in 2013, the opposition boycotted elections, while the merchants actually participated and came to dominate the 2013 parliament. So, what is the reason for this kind of uh, var variation? Um, while, while Comparing the two events, um, I got to the conclusion that in the 1989 case, um, the threat to the parliament was um, systemic, so it was the, the threat for, to the whole parliamentary life in Kuwait, uh, because the government was not planning to return it in the same shape as it used to be. And um, this was quite crucial for the merchants because um, the parliament is an important tool for them to uh, pursue their interest and to, um, to challenge both the government and other groups. So if you um, remove the parliament as an institution, they would lose this um, um, tool of political influence. So at that point, the long-term uh, goal of restoring the parliament um, overweighed the short-term um, sort of, um, economic loss that they were experiencing. Um, and uh, in 2011-2013, um, the threat was not to the parliament as an institution because the government was uh, calling for new elections on multiple occasions, um, so there was no this kind of institutional risk. Um, and another important factor here is that the content of the opposition has changed a lot um, during this period. So if in, 2000, in, if in 1989 the opposition was dominated by the urban groups uh, which, uh, were in, in which merchants could be natural leaders and were accepted as natural leaders, in 2011-2013 the opposition was dominated more by tribal and Islamist um, MPs and tribal and Islamist groups. So uh, these were completely different socio-economic um, groups of population and they came with their own leaders and merchants were irrelevant as leaders of this kind of opposition. Uh, moreover, they um, actually started to challenge uh, the merchants' interests themselves. So they, they started to adopt legislation which would have a detrimental effect to the private sector interests like uh, privatization law and BOT law uh, in 2008. Um, so these groups start to pose, pose direct risk to their economic interests and therefore it was a natural step for them to actually reverse their position and go back to uh, parliamentary alliance. 
And um, it's probably evident on that uh, picture. Um, I don't know if you can see it, but the, the banner that uh, is above Musallam al-Barak says that um, the National Assembly is the house of uh, the people, not the <coughs> corner shop of al-Khurafi. So um, it was quite uh, obvious that the opposition was against the, um, the merchant dominance and the inequality that um, they were experiencing. Um, so as a couple of concluding remarks, um, my main argument in this research uh, was that the uh, merchant's political participation um, is explained by the very existence of the parliament in Kuwait. So the parliament is, um, can both serve as a tool for merchants to uh, pursue their interest, but it also serves as a platform for other groups to uh, politicize and to empower, uh, to get empowered. So, um, Therefore, the um, rentier contract in Kuwait is in constant flux, so there, there new groups which come to parliament can challenge the distribution patterns, and therefore merchants need to get engaged in the parliament in order to protect their um, economic interests. Um, and why um, does it matter? Uh, why, why does it matter that the merchants are actually in the parliament? Um, I think the, the major example for, for it would be the, um, the last parliament, which was dissolved um, in September. So this one was uh, dominated by the merchant interest. The speaker of the parliament was Marzouk um, And we could see how they could re reverse the policy-making patterns. So if previous parliaments, dominated by oppositions, were adopting these laws which... Uh, the private sector didn't like, and they were cancelling the projects, cancelling the, uh, the, the obstructing the pace of the development plan. Uh, 2013 Parliament uh, did the absolute opposite, so they adopted the development plan very quickly, started to launch a lot of new projects, um, returned and re-awarded projects which were cancelled, also revised uh, several laws, so everything which would benefit the merchant interests. Um, however, this doesn't mean that the merchants are the driving power of economic and political reform in Kuwait because it's obvious that they would support the reforms and measures that are um, um, beneficial to their interests. However, if we talk about market regulation, labor nationalization um, policies, uh, this would be something they uh, won't support. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to elaborate on these points a bit more in the question and answer sessions, but... That's um, the end of my presentation. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. It was really, really rich and comprehensive. I learned a lot. So uh, I guess we'll go ahead and open it to questions. So if you can just state your name and affiliation, and then we'll get started. So any questions? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start with questions. Um, I, w I wanted to ask, I mean, I'm looking at, at the role of tribes in, in political life inside of Kuwait, and I wanted to know, I mean, to what extent do you think the state perpetuated this idea of a, of a massive division between the, the Badu and the Hadar, like between the, the merchant elites and, and the tribes? I mean, is this division something that you think was, was engineered by the state, at least to a certain extent? And, and if so, do you think that's changing now that, that who's in the opposition is changing? Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think... Um, 
I'm not sure it was really totally engineered by the state, but it's definitely something very beneficial for the state to divide the society. And um, uh, this was one of the reasons why merchants wanted to get back to the um, government, because um, of this antagonism between Badu and Hadar and uh, of who is original Kuwaiti, who is not original Kuwaiti. And I mean, uh, you, you can hear this kind of discourse from probably old merchants um, that these are not civilized people or something like that. So it's something quite um, um, dis discriminatory. So, um, but I think younger generation is less um, uh, less bothered by this division. And I think now, um, actually now in the parliament, um, Al-Baptain, he's uh, sort of from the merchant families, but he's uh, very much allied with the opposition, as far as I can judge so, I mean, at this point. So this is probably an example of a young a merchant who is um, not uh, driven by this kind of um, socio-economic divisions. Okay, interesting. Um, yes. Hi, um, uh, Jeffrey Hughes from the Anthropology Department here. Um, so I found this very interesting, and I, I guess you seem somewhat critical of the model of the frontier state and I was specifically interested if you think that it's worth salvaging. I know that it's been critiqued as somehow exoticizing what might just be normal political behavior that we see all over the world. Um, so if it is worth salvaging, what is it that you see is different about political behavior in Saudi Arabia versus, say, here in the UK or some other uh, country that would normally not be classified as a rentier state? Um, well, I think um, I'm critical of rentier state to some extent, but not Totally. I think it's still a lot of its provisions are true. It's just um, we cannot take it as a static model because it's very much um, there are lots of intervening variables and factors which uh, then change this political behavior. So the provisions of rentier states are true, um, sort of um, the basic ones are true, but then how it uh, sort of um, how, how it is then developing in, in the actual political behaviors can be very different. Um, so your question was that um, how is it different in, in the rentier state like Saudi Arabia and UK in, in terms of what? Uh, well, I mean, a rentier state obviously is a very dif distinct type of state, so um, I guess this won't be applicable to a country like UK. Um, in Saudi Arabia, it would be quite different. Sorry? <coughs> no, they, they don't have parliament, first of all. But uh, in Saudi Arabia, first of all, the, the amount of population is much bigger than in Kuwait, Qatar, or UAE. So they have to, uh, this kind of allocation pattern is um, under pressure now because the resources are declining and the amount of population is much larger to sustain so that's why every single rentier country is quite different and you have to analyze it separately thank you very much for your talk was very informative um student student at Exeter I would have Thomas a question but I'll try to be brief maybe a couple just one is the Shia families is there one Shia family or maybe a couple that is 
uh, politically active and has actually uh, influenced uh, its own constituency. And the other one was, uh, um, is there like our merchant families' interests and aligned uh, with one another? Or have there been times where certain families were with the government and certain other families with the opposition, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, with the Shia families, certainly there are examples of um, Shia merchant families who were actually successful in the parliament, in, in, in the in politics in general. For example, Al Wazan, but this is exactly the example of what happens when the uh, the merchant or the merchant families starts to get allied with a certain political bloc because he was um, part of the. Um, the Shia political bloc in Kuwait, and that's why he was chosen as a minister and was more politically prominent and active. Um, regarding the, uh, if their interests are allied or not, um, I mean they, they're all driven by the individual rent-seeking interests. So it's uh, can't say that there is a there are class interest or class sort of behavior or politics there. Um, so. At certain occasions, um, for example, in those movements like 1989 and um, in 2013, uh, there were merchants who actually allied with the government in 1989, and then um, same happened in 2011-2013. So uh, th there would be different factors behind that. For example, <coughs> you would see quite a few Shia, very pro-government families who had their can candidates in 1990 elections. This was not parliamentary elections. This was a new majlis which the government was trying to establish, which would be much, which was, wouldn't be as free as the original parliament in its um, actions. So, but most of the families boycotted it, and most of the merchants boycotted it, but there would be some of them who actually went and um, supported the government for that. Um, so, yes, I mean, uh, it's very much dependent on each family and how, uh, which ties it has to the ruling family as well. Uh, the question is, uh, yes, the blue shirt. Hi, sorry, um, Marcus Chadwick. I'm a charge of Mid-East politics company called T.S. Lombard. Um, so the government's now receiving half as much oil money as it was just after the 2013 elections. Do you think that's going to change the equation at all? In that the government's now under far more fiscal pressure. Its costs are much higher than three years ago. Its income's far lower. And it's also under pressure to, to sort of force diversity into the economy. Is that going to change this arrangement, this dynamic with the merchant families, or, or not really? Um, I think... Um it's absolutely right that now they have to make some decisions in terms of um, resource allocation patterns. Um, and they're trying to do it, and they're trying to reduce the subsidies, and um, not probably not too successfully at the moment. Um, I guess the merchants would be the ones who um, would support the government in terms of diversification and uh, privatization and all this kind of measures which would benefit them, but you wouldn't expect them to support the government when it comes to allowing foreign uh, businesses to come to Kuwait and operate freely without um, um, without local um, partner or agent. So um, I guess the, the government would still struggle a lot with the parliament um, 
when trying to implement those unpopular measures and to save the, the budget from depletion. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ibrahim. I'm a PhD student in UCL Institute of Education. Uh, your presentation is very interesting, but I think you must a Shia family. Yeah. Uh, have you do it for yeah. purpose or? Uh, no, no. Um, I mean, this, they are an example of multi elite business, yeah. which they are far away from politics yeah. at all, and yeah. their business is working very, very good. Yeah. So this is an interesting example of this. Yeah, I mean, um, I the. The examples that I, the table that I gave here is just a part of the bigger sample because I co couldn't put all 35 families there. Um, Shia family, yes, it's normally given as the example of a, fam of a family which is completely politically um, dis distant from co political uh, field. Um, however, I think Haytham Shia was trying to get into parliament, uh, who is the nephew of... Um, the head of the business. I mean, there was a lot of money put into his candidacy, and he just didn't win because he didn't have the charisma. And um, that also sort of a, quite an important factor that sometimes um, wealth is not uh, the thing which decides um, the election results. So, um, and also, um, Shia represented at the higher council of planning, and they ha they have sort of their ways, I guess, into influence, uh, influencing the politics. As well as if we look to Mazuga Lime as an example, before 2012, 2000, before 2012 he was opposite the government. Yeah. He was acting against his, uh, against Krafi, the yeah. speaker. So this is show us how the role, how they are playing different yeah. roles because Al-Kharafi was in a position that he can't get the agreement with the government, he pays as the opposite of the government. Mm -hmm. And then after Al-Kharafi, he takes the position yeah. to, to leave all of these business instead of... Yeah, I think mm -hmm. uh, it's a very um, I mean, interesting comment. I mean, as I said, in 2011, first, in the beginning of this whole opposition movement, some some of the prominent merchants inside the parliament, like Marzukhani, were with the opposition. But then they shifted when sort of it started to be too dangerous for them, I guess, to involve. Um, so um, you're absolutely right with that. Um, yes. Yeah, my name is uh, Mark Bloomberg. Mark Bowling, sorry, I'm an uh, African Middle communist of Bloomberg. So my question is similar to. Here, just I mean, especially specifically, specifically when it comes to uh, value-added tax reform. I don't know to what extent these families are uh, involved in retail, but I mean that's an issue where GCC are looking to sort mm -hmm. together to implement uh, this by 2018. I guess you know, it makes sense to sort of all implement it at the same time. But there's yeah. this whole much of families' opinion that. Um, well, I guess in, in terms of subsidies, they would be allied with the major uh, population because no one wants the subsidies to um, get lifted. In terms of taxation, I think the, the re merchants are more prepared to pay the tax. Um, 
so at least when I was doing my field work, I could sense that they probably um, foresee the day when they would um, have to pay corporate tax as well, um, which um, I mean, th that could actually make them more politically powerful because then they would be a source of income for the government and they would have more um, leverage, I guess. Um, so I think that there is generally they would be able to do these kind of things in terms of taxation and people would be happy with merchants being taxed. Um, and in terms of subsidies, I guess it would be much more difficult. But when they lifted the electricity and water subsidies, uh, they lifted it for expatriate um, households, but also for commercial um, enterprises. So merchants would be affected by it. Yeah, that's a quite a complex question to answer. Um, I think for the time being, they are quite happy in this swinging position, and as long as the the, the state has its resources and it can invest and get the um, revenues from its foreign investor investments and so on, I think um, the system would be in place as it is now. There would I can't see that there would be great changes to the parliamentary system as such. So the demands of the opposition to have an elected prime minister or to have political parties, I don't think that this will happen anytime soon. Uh, these demands are not popular with uh, the rest of the population either. So um, exactly for the reason that there's a quite uh, a lot of quite distinct stratifications between different groups and no one wants to be a to have a prime minister from a certain tribe or certain um, group of population. Um, whether there will be a straw which would 
break the camel's back. I mean, um, it's it's very difficult to predict. I think at the moment. I mean, they they are trying to reduce the budget spending, but every single uh, attempt is a failure, almost. I mean, when they try to um, to reform the um, the wage wages pattern for the state uh, for the government sector and for particularly for the employees of the oil sector which get quite um, high salaries I mean there was a strike for three days so um, I think the government would have more problem with the rest of the population rather than with merchants in in sort of trying to implement any kind of changes um, for the merchants I think the the difference now is that they can exit the country. They can go and have business somewhere else. They have, can have business in the UAE when, where it is a better business environment. Although I would argue that it's a very limited um, possibility for them as well because they, they would get most of their income from the business in Kuwait. So um, it's not that they can just pack up and go to a different country if they're not happy with the situation. Um, and this is what happened during the Arab Spring up uprisings so the most a lot of them had investments in Egypt in uh, Syria and everywhere and then when the uprisings happened they lost their investments and the government had to intervene again and um, help them out so uh, it's a quite a limited way for them to sort of, um, get their assets outside of the country I don't know if it answered your questions at all but um, sort of try to speculate a bit um, uh, um, uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Um, uh, IBS, uh, how do you relate uh, the division and society between the merchant elite and uh, like normal population and uh, the econom our general economic stagnation in the, in the country and social stagnation? Also? How do you relate? Is, like, do you think that there is like a high impact? Of, because, like, because of that division, there is economic stagnation? Um, I think uh, it's not that it's the cause of economic stagnation, but this division is uh, exacerbated and it, it starts to play a, a political role because of the economic factors. So when you have, when the government has to introduce austerity measures and say, okay, we'll cut, uh, cut your wages of the public sector workers and uh, lift the subsidies, then of course all the people were affected would say, and why are you distributing this multi-billion KD uh, pro projects to those merchant families? So this is um, this is where the government has to explain itself, um, and that causes the legitimate discontent from this not so wealthy population. Um, so I guess yes, I mean that's the main sort of interaction between the two. Mm. Uh. Martina, uh, you are an urban strategy consultant. And I'm interested in, I'm asking, you mentioned that the, uh, the progressive, the GCC sort of liberalization or anyway, you know, possibility of setting up business, changing countries and so on, you know, the, the mini union that is emerging with the GCC is changing obviously the way that business is made and also how people live and opportunities potentially. What do you see? Because Kuwait is quite unique in the sense that the GCC is the only one that has a parliament and therefore is slower and more bureaucratic mm -hmm. uh, than the other countries. 
how do you see that the progressive um, integration of the GCC countries would play out? Um, I think Kuwait yeah. and maybe in other countries. Um, I guess in other countries, the example of Kuwait is the best illustration for why not to have a, a parliament ever. Uh, I mean, because that, that's the reason why countries like the UAE can, you know, do whatever they want. I mean, that, that's not not say that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just they, they don't have um, any body which would keep them accountable to their actions. So you can rule the country as your personal business, do whatever project you want. and. Um, this is sort of a one model, and Kuwait is a completely opposite model. So I think, um, yes, for the GCC countries, it's just uh, an example of Bahrain. Um, yeah, yeah, but it has two chambers, and uh, it's it's less powerful than the um, the Kuwaiti parliament, I think. Um, so, therefore, I mean, Kuwait is trying hard to establish itself as a hub for trade, as a sort of replicates the patterns of Dubai or other countries and um, but it obviously has much more obstacles to do anything um, as, an, as I said during 2013 Parliament uh, there was a big push for these new projects and the ports that they want to have as a, a sort of logistics hub um, in Kuwait and new petrochemical um, sort of, um, plants and so on. So uh, they try to diversify where they can, but um, there would be more obstacles for that. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, it's in the back. Yeah. Yes, with the glasses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hitchens from the University of Exeter. Thank you for a very interesting talk. During the talk, you mentioned the role of merchant families within the Kuwaiti media. I was wondering if you could expand on that and uh, could tell uh, more about the ownership of the media by the Kuwaiti Muslim families and also how they use the media as a tool in order to influence politics. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in Kuwait, I think quite quite a few newspapers are owned by the merchants. So Al Qabas obviously is a big one and um, old, um, and it's owned by Nusf and Shire. Um, then, um, sorry? Arai, yeah, um, um, and um, there's one owned by Al Marzouk as, as well. Um, there is uh, Nahar for Bukhamsin, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's kind of a more Shia perspective on everything. And um, when you read the newspapers, you can definitely see the bias as well. So, um, I don't know, for example, when there was. Um, uh, the discussion about the Cato um, uh, um, um, agreement between uh, Doe Chemical and Kuwait um, Oil Company. Uh, obviously, the parliament was very much against um, this agreement, and then it forced the agreement to fall apart, to, to be cancelled. And uh, you could see it in the Al Qabas would be very much pro the um, uh, agreement because it would give merchants a lot of opportunities which would trickle down from the this uh, massive um, initiative uh, but for example Alwatan which is uh, which was owned by sort of a ruling family member but kind of um, um, 
r rival ruling family member uh, was very much against the deal and it was publishing constantly how, how bad the deal w would be for the economy, particularly in the times of financial crisis, and ultimately sort of they caused the deal to uh, be cancelled. So, but you could, you could see this in, in different newspapers, and that's one of the ways to influence politics as well. Well, definitely, they were quite an important part of how the opposition movement emerged in 2011. So it, it started basically with the Bidouns to protest um, and to sort of demand the um, solution for their um, issue in Kuwait. And there are quite a, f a big number of them in Kuwait as well. And it's a, a problem which is n not close to being solved at all. Uh, and um, I think that there is quite a strong connection between Bidouns and s tribal population because some of the Bidouns are from the same tribe. So there is intermarriage and uh, sort of that's why I guess this opposition, um, the, the beginning of the opposition movement was very much because of the closeness of the two as well. And um, yeah, I guess that's sort of the main um, aspect which I was looking into. It's not very relevant for the merchant communities, I guess, but um, it's more for the like tribal spectrum. Yeah. And also what? Okay. Oh, and, um, yeah, I mean, the um, other institutions um, are, they, they can serve as other venues for the merchants to, um, um, to exercise their political influence. So there, there are quite a few of them in Diwan Amiri. And Diwan Amiri was, I think, recently quite active in the um, execution of the development projects. Um, so uh, that was quite a new phenomenon in Kuwait. So um, it's definitely another venue. But I think why I, why I sort of distinguish parliament from everything else is because when you go to parliament, it's, um, you're not appointed, as it's the case in other, in other bodies in Kuwait. You're, if you're a minister, then you're appointed by the government. You're expected to be 100% loyal, and um, there is no room for deviation. Uh, if you're going to the parliament, then it's first of all your own decision, and you um, you risk to fall out both with the government if you do something wrong, and you risk your reputation. So it's quite interesting. It was quite interesting for me to see why they would put themselves uh, themselves under this kind of risk, and the risk towards their family businesses as well. Um, so that's why I make uh, the distinction between the other bodies and the parliament. Um, other questions? Uh, yes. Yeah, um, I was wondering, do you think there might be other variables that could explain why uh, the merchant elites would join the uh, FTC in Kuwait? Because I'm writing my own thesis about family businesses and 
are basically mm. the merchant elites as well. And I could really tell that many of them uh, were saying that money is not really everything. Mm. So I don't know if self-interest yeah. would really be the reason behind everything um, they do. Oh, definitely. I think um, um, it's a question of prestige as well. Um, so, I mean, to give an example, um, Jaisim al-Khurafi, which I showed in the, one of the first slides, uh, was a long-standing MP and the speaker. But then um, Muhammad al-Sagar started to um, participate in the elections and start, and he became a rival for Jaisim al-Khurafi. Uh, it was rivalry both on the business level because at the same time Al-Khurafi business acquired Sagar's business in a very sort of uh, aggressive uh, acquisition and it was the whole story behind it. But um, So th it was like a rivalry on several levels and it was um, a competition to the extent that it's not only who of them gets into parliament but who gets more votes because it's of the, the prestige of the family depends on that. So um, I guess it's, it's a very sort of um, important factor as well. Um, also just, I mean, it could be the, just the personal decision of the member of the family, uh, just as a gain more opportunities, more um, reputation. And, I mean, uh, also the example, Rakanonis um, is a member of the merchant families. He's in the parliament. But and this family is, in general is quite wary of sort of participating in, in the political scene, in the parliamentary scene directly. And the senior people in the family, are, they were quite sort of disapproving of him going into parliament because he can uh, put the, the reputation of the family under threat, the business of the family under threat. But he went anyway and he was supported by the family because they had to support him. He's part of the family, so it's sort of it's individual decision as well. I mean, uh, but you're right. I think um, and there are the other factors as well. It's about, uh, sorry, it's about power. Yeah. It's about power. Being the speaker of the parliament in court, you yeah. are the third man or the third person in the country after the emir and the vice, uh, the, the prime minister. So he's he's above the prime minister. Okay. So yeah. having power. So this is what happened when when Asagar started to, to in 2012 against Asardun yeah. to be the speaker of the of the government. Then he lost. Mm -hmm. Then he haven't been uh, participating in any election because yeah. he was very sad from the government that they yeah. hadn't supported. Yeah, and this is the, another reason for him not standing, not participating in the election and standing against Marzouk Arhanian because. Uh, if he, I mean, losing to Sadun is one thing because Sadun is a great fig, political figure in Kuwait, but losing to Marzouk al Hanim, who is younger and sort of a um, more junior kind of merchant, um, would be a great blow to his reputation. So, this as well. Anyone else? Other questions? Comments? 
thank you so much. You've, you've uh, clarified a lot about Kuwaiti politics, which is always confusing. Um, and just uh, to let you all know, um, the next Kuwait program seminar will be on February 7th. We'll be hosting Sarah Al-Sharif from Royal Holloway. She'll be talking about opportunities and challenges for female entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia. Um, so we hope to see you again soon. And thank you so much, Anastasia. It was a fascinating presentation. Thank you.